Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Now, I think that's an interesting verse. If you could reflect on it a little bit, we'll springboard us into what it's about to say. Isn't it interesting that he commands us to rejoice in the Lord? You would think of that maybe more as a benefit. You know, that's something we would like to do. But he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says something really weird about that. He says, writing this again is not trouble for me, but it's a safeguard for you. We would think of the order to rejoice in the Lord as being a safeguard, like a protection, like something that's going to keep us out of danger. How, how does rejoicing in the Lord a safeguard for us? Keeps your mind focused. Keeps our mind focused. Just kind of think about that. And now I'd like for us to read the rest of this section. You'll keep that in your mind. I think you might understand more deeply what Paul meant even when he said to rejoice in the Lord. 2 to 11. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who in the Spirit of God and the glory and glory of Christ Jesus and put on confidence but no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else, if anyone else has, has a mind but confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, having the righteousness of my own derived from the law from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness, the righteousness which comes from God. Now I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship and the fellowship of his sufferings, being concerned, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection. He warns in verse 2 about the dogs, which is kind of a weird thing to warn about, but I don't think he had in mind the, uh, you know, canine variety. And he's talking about uh, false teachers who prowl around congregations, greedily preying on the weak and trying to drag them off. Beware of the evil workers. We may come back to that phrase. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, here's a big issue among the early Christians. There were Jews who became Christians who insisted that you had to become a Jew to be saved. You had to be circumcised, in other words, and agree to keep the law before you could become a Christian. That was not true. You, Paul was uh, as much a Jew as anybody could be, but he did not believe you had to be a Jew to be a Christian. That was adding conditions that God 
ever imposed on Gentiles to be saved. So he calls these people, and well, the false circumcision, my margin says literally mutilation. They are, they are circumcised. But it's not really something for God. He says we are the true circumcision. Our circumcision, our cutting off the flesh has nothing to do with uh, the, the physical act of circumcision. It's cutting the sin out of our heart. That's the true circumcision we undergo, who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when he's in rejoicing, underline the Lord, don't underline rejoice. His point is, rejoice, guys. Make sure you're happy. Please rejoice. No, his point is, you rejoice the Lord. Quit rejoicing and putting your trust in all these other things. That's the point of these passages. They're certainly rejoicing at Christ. But I don't think here, when he commands us to rejoice, the point is we have. I think the point is, you have your joy and confidence and satisfaction in the Lord and not in your own achievements and accomplishments. When he says that we put no confidence in the flesh, he means we're not trusting in the things we've done. We're putting all of our joy, glory, and trust in Christ and what he has done. And he goes and he explains that he is not objecting to trusting in fleshly accomplishments because he didn't have any. You know what? I, uh, I really don't think that uh, working out is very important. You know, I don't think being strong really helps you any. Now, for me to say that kind of looks rather self-promoting. Uh, you know, no wonder I don't think that's important. You know, I don't have much to work with in that department. So for me to throw off on that kind of looks like, well, yeah, you would say that. You know, um, but, but for me to say, I don't think grades matter at all. I don't think it makes any difference what kind of grades you get or how well you do in school. Well, I got straight A's. That means a little bit more. It's not, I wouldn't be saying that because I couldn't do that. I'd be saying that because it doesn't matter. Paul said, I don't glory in the flesh. And it's not because I couldn't. If you want to line me up in Judaism, we'll just look at it. He says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind put confidence in the flesh, I far more, he was circumcised the eighth day, the day, according to the law. Nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, one of the two, the only tribe to stay faithful to Judah in the split. You know, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, that's the top of the line, that's the strictest, you know, group of the Jews. As the zeal of persecutor of the church, I mean, he was in the top of his class in Phariseeism, even a persecutor of the church. You know, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. I mean, he was 100%. He was right there. He had all the credentials. He, he was Mr. Everything in Judaism. If he says it doesn't matter, it isn't because he can't compete. He can outdo any of them with his resume in Judaism. But look at what he says. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as nothing for the sake of Christ. Is that what he said? 
What does he say? As lost. You know, I would have said it counted as nothing. You know, like now they're not anything. He doesn't say now they're not anything. He said I counted them as lost. I counted them as negative, as a deficit, as a liability. Whoa, that's pretty strong. You know, that counts as nothing. Well, it's just like, well, you Mac. You know, if I had to do a game, I didn't. He said, no, for me, they weren't, they weren't a, a zero. They were actually a negative thing. Do you know why? Why do we count these things as lost? Partially by contrast, because he gained so much. But I think there's one more thing. This might not be so obvious yet. I think because they tempted him to trust in those things and not feel his need for the Lord. That's the thing about all accomplishments of ourselves in this life. They tempt us to satisfy. It's the worst thing about being good at stuff. You know, one of the worst things to be is good at everything. If you're smart, if you're athletic, if you're talented musically and artistically, and you're popular, and you've got this and that and the other, it's horrible. Because you're so good at everything, you tend to rely on those things and fill yourself up with those things, and you don't have any appetite for God. Best thing to be is to be a loser. You have nothing. If you're poor, if you're dumb, if you're weak, if you're not talented, then you don't have much to come to the trust in. And it makes you more hungry for the Lord. Who were the people that flocked to Jesus? The intellectual giants? The wealthy? The powerful? It was just the opposite. It was the people who didn't have any opportunity to trust in those things. That's why Paul said all of those things for me were actually a loss. Because they, they filled me up too quickly. Kind of like filled up on garbage and then you don't have any room for the real good, nourishing food. That's what happened to Paul. They were negative. You know, and, and, and man, I love verse 8. He goes a step beyond that. I don't know I'm talking too much, but he goes a step beyond that. He said, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the servant value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but the word there really means sewage but count them but sewage so that I may gain Christ everything else every other achievement every other success is like manure it, it, it stinks it, it's such a detriment because Christ is so awesome that anything that possibly fills me up and leaves me less hungry for him is a negative and it's, it's destructive. I don't want it. Isn't that amazing? Paul's not saying that theoretically. He acts up for the loss of all things. You look at 2 Corinthians was written years before this. And I just, last Sunday, I guess, preached on Second Corinthians 11. That's a wiggle. The 22 to Where Paul just goes through all that he went through. And it is unbelievable. 
He was whipped with 39 lashes like the Jews would, with the whips embedded with pieces of glass and bone and metal. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. And the Acts 27 shipwreck we knew about was after that one. Those three. <laughs> that must have been at least number four. How do you get shipwrecked four times and survive it? He said there was a whole day and night he spent adrift in the sea waiting to get picked up. Pretty unlikely he survived that too. And then he says, I was just in danger everywhere. You know, here, there, yonder, the other, everywhere. He was just constantly being attacked. The false brethren were chasing him, you know, even up to a hundred and some miles to run him out of the next town. You know, can you imagine people that fanatical destroy you? But he says, really, you know, apart from these external there's a daily pressure on my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my concern? Really, those external, you know, beatings, stonings, and shipwrecks, and all that. That was nothing. There's a daily stress and worry so much about all the churches. And being concerned about every weak brother. And every brother was led into sin. We have a long ways to go. Paul is so inspired. Can you see from his perspective with how much he loved the Lord and how much he gave himself to God? Everything else was garbage. Because Christ was so much for him. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus you know, he says in verse 9, it may be found that I may gain Christ, may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, you're right, the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God in the face of faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed with death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then we'll go back and look at a few of those. That was so wonderful. Everything else. That's an amazing passage. A little chapter, but it's amazing. Comments? You talked about his concern and the struggle that he went through thinking about the other church. And a lot of times, uh, well, thank you for your We don't get emotional because so often you lose out. But it seems that if you look at it as a soul instead of just something to do just to check mark off your religion. Yep, I did my evangelism they day. Take it and say, that's a soul that needs saving. There is going to be some emotion. I think that's a great example of how to really be concerned with those who you Amen. I've never been a doctor. But I would assume they teach prospective doctors in medical school how to keep a certain professional distance from their patients. If a doctor got emotionally involved in the well, physical well-being of every patient, it would probably be a wreck. I don't know. So you assume a doctor has to kind of not feel for the patient. I grew up, I haven't any feelings for And I, I realized that I didn't have compassion. I started realizing that I needed it. That's what the Lord had. That's what I had. But I remember then, as time went on, and I actually started caring about it and loving it. 
that my life changed a lot. When all I thought about was myself, and I didn't really care about anybody else, I was just like this. Nothing ever affected me. Because nothing ever affected me. I didn't care about it. When I started loving other people and really investing in them and really getting close to them, really caring about how they were doing, my life started going like this. You know, one minute I was up and the other minute I was down because of how the people I loved and cared about were doing. I just started thinking, you know, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. Maybe I'm not supposed to be like this. I didn't think I was supposed to be so affected by everybody. But then you read the Apostle Paul. I'll tell you a great chapter. His first Thessalonians 3, where Paul was willing to, to be left alone in Athens to send probably the late teenager Timothy, his own child, back to Thessalonica because he was so worried about how they were doing. And he wanted him to find out how they were doing to strengthen and encourage them with their faith. And when Timothy got back, Paul said, now we have, knowing that you're standing firm in the faith, he said, we can't think like Paul had suspended his life waiting for news for how the Thessalonian brethren were doing. That's how it was. And he only spent a few weeks there and left. And then he had developed that passion for That really helped me. Seeing passages like that made me realize it's a lot more up and down when you care about others. But it's exactly what the Lord as exactly what Paul had. You just want to have the same heart toward everybody that Jesus has. That same love, that same compassion, that same concern. And it will be to where no earthly success means anything. And the bigger ones are really delicious. They really hurt Because it's so easy to get way too distracted and artificially fulfilled by stupid earthly successes. You know, I want to make a couple of more observations on this. Go back to verse 2, the evil workers. I suspect he was also referring to the idea uh, they were trying to achieve salvation by their own works. Look at verse 9. Paul didn't want a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes by, by faith in Jesus. The whole idea of righteousness is challenging in the New Testament, but it's key. I want to, I want to take a second and try to explain righteousness in the New Testament and kind of related to this verse. Think about the U.S. laws and us being innocent. Let's assume for the time being that the judges and juries and courtrooms are all totally fair, totally just, and they know everything. And so you've got a law in almost all states, probably all states, that you're not allowed to murder someone, right? Anybody live in a state where you're allowed to murder? Okay. All right. Now, you're in a perfectly just courtroom. 
And you actually uh, got upset one day and you went into McDonald's and you shut out the place and you killed my dad. And you're on trial in a just courtroom. What's the verdict going to be? Guilty, right? If it's just, and you kill that those people, however, you're on the witness stand in your own defense, and you say, Your Honor, I'm really sorry about those happening to people, but I'll tell you what, I want to talk about all those people I have You know, there are so many people I've known that I haven't killed. That, that really, I mean, I think those half a dozen really ought to condemn me. Because there's a whole lot more people I haven't killed than the ones I have. How do you think that roll up looked? Do I? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it's going to work. Well, what if I say, well, yeah, you know, I, I really, I, I kind of messed up on that one, but I want you to know that I have really been doing a lot of good. I have really been, I, I've, been, I've been giving my money to charities, I've been helping little old ladies across the street, you know, I've been a really good guy to my neighbors, and I really feel like for all the good I've done, I've really done enough good to kind of balance out those unfortunate incidents. How are they going to treat me in the just courtroom? What's the verdict going to be? Guilty. Because you can't do anything. You even killed one person. In cold blood, you know, you got mad at him, you shot him, and they died. I don't care how many good things you've done or how many other people you didn't kill. You are guilty. You can't look at your life as a murderer and say, yeah, but I'm such a good guy, I think I ought to be declared innocent. Because you are innocent. You're guilty. You killed somebody. In God's law. Are we, forget about the sacrifice of Christ for a moment. If it was just based upon, upon your record, are you guilty or innocent? Guilty! Why? We broke his laws! Yeah, but look at all the good I did! Well, look at all the laws I didn't break! Or whatever! Does that make any sense? If we try to be innocent on our own, based upon our own wrath, we'll be locked out of court. We have broken, we didn't just kill half a dozen people. We've broken way more laws than God's We are criminals in God's justice system, and there's only one way that we can ever be against. And that is Jesus' amazing plan where he took the wrath for us and he died in our place. So if we just turn to him in faith, it'll be in faith. We're declared Our records right clean. All of us have put on Jesus and he took the penalty. That's an incredible thing. I mean, if you had a way to do that in this country, imagine going into McDonald's and killing half a dozen people, and then there's a way of getting your whole record fine. And, and none of that's held against you. Just because you trust obediently in the Lord. That never happened in court in this country. We don't have any process like that. But that's amazing. That's why Paul says, wow. 
He's not just about half the job. His work so much more than all other accomplishments I've ever made. I know this has been a little more challenging just to think through, but we don't ever talk about these things because they're more complicated. We'll never really see the amazing blessing of God. Hundreds of thoughts. All right, 12 to 16. Not that I have already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if, any, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that, that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard. Is it really shouldn't surprise us that again, Paul is a model for the attitude we should have? What is he saying here? What's he emphasizing? He's not perfect, and so what is he doing? He's pressing forward. He's reaching forward. Think about a, a runner. My son run, ran cross country. And you'd watch, especially the bigger meets, these guys crossing the finish line, practically lunging forward, throwing up, you know, driving themselves to the absolute limit reaching forward to get a split second more off their time, to, to get ahead of that next guy, you know, to, to get another spot for their team. You know, it's that idea of Paul intensely pursuing the goal of where Christ is, of being like Jesus. Now, he says something that's often misinterpreted here. In verse 13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, there's a lot of senses in which it's good to forget what lies behind. But in the context here, what kinds of things is Paul talking about that he forgets the things that lie behind? No. But thank you for saying that. That's what most people think. The past life of Christ is living I don't think so. I think that's what we generally assume. Things that were gained to him. I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe closer. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with either of those totally, but I think he may even be going a step beyond that. When he forgets the things that are behind, what's he really forgetting? No, I don't think so. All those are good things to forget, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think so. Could be in the context, but I think he's moved on to a further point. Think about being a runner. Your opponents? I don't think so. 
obstacles or barriers? I don't think so. The distance. I don't know. That's interesting. You don't have to agree with my perception, but it's interesting that none of us have come to what I really think is that. I think you say, forget about the achievement you've already made. Forget about the ground you've already come across. You know, sometimes you do pretty good when you Wow, look at that. Whoa, I've really grown. Things are really going well, man. I'm really doing a lot better than I used to. Look at how far I've grown. You know what you do when you do that? You get paralyzed. You sit right down admiring your past accomplishments instead of constantly pursuing to grow more. It's one of the things that I see that happens to people. I'll tell you something I see all the time. You know, I talk to guys all the time in various forms. And, and especially about purity issues, about other things too. Especially about purity issues. I don't know how many people I've seen. You know, they've been having no struggles. And they commend themselves for they pray the Lord for the Lord's drink and service. And they actually do well. They do well for a whole week. They make and they get so excited about the fact now it's behind them. Now they're doing great. Now they have no more problems. But they fall down. Instead of looking forward and pursuing the Lord, you're growing more and stronger, they're looking back and thinking, whoa, look at how good I'm doing. And that's for you. That him that thinks he can't take you must fall. It's always terrible for us when we look back instead of pursuing what we've got to go. So I think you say satisfaction is fatal to progress. Don't look behind at what you've achieved. Look forward to what you still need to achieve and make all of your efforts and focus on growing more and more and more. He says one thing I do. People who only do one thing succeed. At least they have a lot bigger chance than others. I've never thought about being an Olympic athlete. It's probably a bit late for me. It's probably a bit late for most of you. You know, when do Olympic athletes usually begin? Yeah, when they're, uh, you know, starting Olympic school. I mean, and, and do you ever see hardly any Olympic athletes who, like, uh, really is great in swimming and skiing? Or something like that. Yeah, Jews. You can't do two totally different events and expect to succeed in the Olympics. You've got to narrow down and have one thing you pursue. That has to become everything to you. The guy who's diversified never makes the Olympics. He may be a good athlete overall. You can't make the Olympics if you're trying to do half a dozen things. You have to have one passion, one goal, one focus for years of your life. People who do one thing tend to succeed. Paul said, one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. See, he doesn't have my hold of me yet, so no use looking back and treasuring what he's done. He's still, the goal's still ahead of him. So reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God Christ Jesus. That's what I think.
What do you think? So then in verse 16 where he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In the context, we've said it, he's talking about growth. And so in order to get to a point, you have to grow. And so is he saying there, hope that's where we are. Maybe. 15 and 16 are really tough. I think in 15, he's probably saying, you know, continuous attitude of looking forward and pressing on. And I think he may be saying, don't abandon the principles that you're building on. You know, let God guide you to grow more and more, or something like that. But I still, I don't have a real clue. I don't know. Other questions about Well, there's another threat. You know, it's amazing. The devil is so versatile in things. But he'll hit us in one direction, and then he will come in the opposite and get us. So we see that here, 17 to 21. Brethren, join and follow my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their ability, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, farces and ships in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body and conform to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Okay, I want to I want to take 17 apart for just a second and make a couple points and then we'll see it in the context. In 17, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. You follow me and others who are following the Lord faithfully. One of the things we really need to do is have good models and look at them and follow them. That is so powerful. And I want you to just make an application for a moment. Many of you have heard me say this. One of my pet things. But one of the greatest things about these environments is the opportunity to be inspired by peers or people just older who are stronger than you are, better than you are, more spiritually minded than you are. It gives you an example to shoot for. It shows you in flesh and blood what you could be and how strong you could be and how much you could be. And it's wonderful for us finding good models and really getting our dedicating ourselves to imitating them and seeking them is such a blessing to us. And so look for those. Make your peers the strongest Christians you can find. And when you see somebody really doing well in the world, find that everything you can about it and, and, and imitate it. Style they care or something like that. Say, imitate their heart, their faith, their conduct, their attitude, their spirit. Those are the kind of things you Come this question. It's cool to see how imitation is a chain reaction. Because he's saying, imitate, he said, or imitate means I imitate Christ. And then if you keep it going down, 
we can keep looking up, they're all looking up in the same direction. So it's a good, it's a good tool to use to find something really interesting to start crafting the best way because it'll, because if someone's looking up to you, there's always going to be that younger kid around or that person who's weaker, and it's just going to have a domino effect with positive. Amen. So think about that. Then he warns them about almost the opposite of these Judaizing teachers from the chapter, the early part of the chapter. Here's these enemies of the cross of Christ who are just seeking their own joys and fulfillments and pleasures. He says they're, they're God is their own appetite. It's doing what makes them happy what they want. They set their minds on earthly things. Here are the people who are just carnal, this world focused people. By the way, I have no idea what time I'm supposed to stop. The bell The bell is I was worried about that. Okay, We're, we'll, we'll work on this at chapter four tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks for your attention. Thank you.